Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast, a look back at some of the highlights from the past week. And once again, we've been joined by some incredible people, from a man who saw his school bombed during the Second World War, to a jewellery expert, to an artist who was recently diagnosed with Asperger's and taught really honestly and movingly about her personal experiences. But first, we had a special programme on Friday as we took Women Today on the road for the first time as the Isle of Man turned pink in support of the Manx Breast Cancer Support Group. And the day started off with our Joe following Booby Bear around some of the island's schools. OK, we need the year sixes first, I think, to show us how it's done. Can you be better than that? I'm sure you can. We're at Balakotia School today. Um, the children have been fantastic. Every single child here is in pink clothing, pink wigs, pink everything. Um, there's a fashion show going on. Booby Bear's been up on the stage having a bit of a boogie, which has gone down an absolute storm. Brilliant. And for anyone that doesn't know what Booby Bear is, maybe we should just tell them what it is. Okay, Booby Bear is our mascot. He goes everywhere with us. Um, children love him. And Booby has actually got a girlfriend now, but we haven't got a name for Booby's girlfriend. Um, Booby Bear and his girlfriend are on their way to St Mary's School shortly. Why is it so important to go around to the schools, do you think? Um, basically to make everybody aware. You know, this, this unit will be used for the next generations to come. It's absolutely essential. It's essential. Every single woman over the age of 50 will use this unit at some point for breast screening alone. So it, it's, you know, it's, it's essential that we get the message out there how important it is. How are the kids reacting? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. They've really, really got in touch with it and they just all, yeah, love it. Love it. I'm Susie Lister and I'm the Rainbow Room Unit Manager at Balakotti School. Susie, doing an event like this, how important do you think it is for the children? The children gain a lot from this event. We started it last year and they had so much fun. And as you can see, they've all dressed up and taken part, even the staff. Hello, Carol Walsh, head teacher, Balakotia School. How much do you enjoy an event like this? Oh, it's super. The children really, really love it. It's lovely to see the looks on their faces. But as well as that, it's understanding of why we're doing it. It's not just for fun. There is a reason behind it. And we have talked to the children about that. And how easy is that to talk or hard is that to talk to the children about it? Um, A mixture. The older ones understand. Uh, The younger ones don't understand quite so much. But the older ones do. And we have had had members of staff here who have had breast cancer. So it, it is, a, it is a, a charity that's very dear to our hearts here at Balakotti School. Okay, guys, are you having fun? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You're all having fun? Yeah. So what is it that we're doing here today? Um, we're raising money to build a ward in the Isle of Man so people don't have to go away for breast cancer. Do you think this is a good way of doing it? Um, yeah, because it's a fun way, but um, we can also raise a lot of money with it. And how do you raise money? Um, everyone dresses up in pink or red and then we bring in one pound and we can bring in 50p for sweets or get cakes. So what's the best part of it, the sweets, the cakes or the fashion show? Um, all of it. Why do you think it's important to do an event like this? Um, well, so people don't have to go away to have treatment for breast cancer because so they feel more at home in the Isle of Man. And what's, what do you understand about it? Um, that anyone can get breast cancer. Um, it's not something that is very rare. 
it happens a lot to normal people. And is there any food that you know that's been affected by breast cancer? Um, no, but some of my friends, uncles and aunties have. And um, they said it was really sad and tragic. So you're happy to raise some money to try and help out? Now, our live studio guest this afternoon experienced life in London during World War II, was invalided out of the Navy after contracting TB, and danced on the Mall in London on Queen Elizabeth II's coronation day. But he is best known in the Isle of Man for fencing. And Henry de Silva, we're going to talk to you all about fencing a little bit later. But first, just take us back to the 1930s. What was your childhood like? Well, um, I was born in 1933, and I don't remember the very early years, although my mother did... I was missing one day out of my pram, and the police finally uh, came back to them and said I'd wandered about five miles across the main arterial road to my aunt's... that I'd only visited once before, so I suppose why that's how I took up navigation in the Navy. <laughs> you clearly do remember the the early years of the war, and, and your school was bombed. Yes, uh, I do remember. I remember uh, a dogfight, seeing the planes, uh, some coming down in smoke over Croydon Aerodrome. I also had, during the war... Uh, the windows blown in on my bed, seeding come down on my bed, but I was always a deep sleeper. And I spent my informative years collecting shrapnel and nose cones. And one year we um, were very lucky because the school got bombed and there was no heating, so we couldn't go to school. <laughs> was that the general feeling, actually? I mean, I suppose it's it's difficult for anybody who hasn't lived through the horror of a war to understand what emotions you go through but there were high points as well yes the high points were we were all very young and it was in a way it was exciting but we thought if we were going to be invited invaded we would dig tunnels and then come up behind the germans and and do whatever we could to disrupt the we were just sort of adventurous you know what we could do like you know the comic things that happened in the comics you know to us we didn't go through the emotions of death and horror we were more or less sort of we're going to beat them (laughs) do you remember the celebrations at the end of the war oh yes i remember i was um at the end of the war um we had our parties we know everything was rationed we still had our street parties and flags and and everything so it was a good time really for us we used to collect acorns for the pigs and you know, used to do um, at school. We went out harvesting at, at different farms. You know, so really, the horrors of the war didn't hit us so much. Um, but afterwards, we sort of saw the injured people and people going around in blue uniforms that was ex-servicemen. And so, therefore, yeah, later years, it did, the horror did come back to us. And what made you want to go into the Navy then? Well, I went into the Navy mainly because my relatives uh, thought it might be a good idea um, just to go into the Navy. So I applied and got in straight away and joined the boys' service in 1949. But I mentioned you contracted TB. What was that period of your life like? Well, I, I spent a year of my life in hospital in 1952 and... 
I enjoyed my time in the Navy, didn't want to come out, tried to get back again on national service, but I wasn't accepted. But I represented the um, Navy at fencing and also at rugby and did cross-country running. So, yes, I had a good time in the Navy. Sport has played a huge part of your life. I mean, you mentioned uh, fencing there, which is what we are going to talk about more later. How did you first come across that sport? Well, the 1948 Games were my inspiration. I used to run a lot at school, but then uh, in 1948, I had my cycle and I used to go to these places in London and get their autographs, and I've still got my autograph book. So this is the 1948 Olympic Games, which is held in London. Olympic Games, yeah. And... The, I got a lot of autographs of that time and I've got exercise books of cuttings of all the uh, various athletes and Fanny Blankis Cohen was my favourite. She was marvellous. And there was a person called Tom Richards who came second in the uh, London Marathon. So I contacted the club and him and another person, they joined me up to the club and I've been in South London Harris ever since till this day. Career-wise, teaching was uh, what you, you really went into. What was, what was it about teaching that you thought, yeah, that's for me? Well, I was always good with... Um, I was at college, and I started to find out my time was organising because I became sports officer, and it seemed to be that I could correlate with children. I seemed to have a affinity with children, and they seemed to like what I did. So... I went into teaching and they encouraged me from the Navy after I went to college and they encouraged me to go into teaching. So I went into teaching. I did also touch on Coronation Day, um, a memory which is absolutely imprinted on your mind. A rainy morning, I understand. Very rainy morning on Coronation Day. I was on the mall. I was dressed in crepe paper, red, white and blue. And of course, you know what happens when it rains, it runs. But one of the experiences was I was, um, I danced with Prince Monolulu down the mall and it was that was quite exciting and you also remember hearing the news about Everest as well on that morning sorry hearing the news about Everest oh yes and it's also at six o'clock that morning it went through like fire that we heard in the news that Everest had been climbed by Hillary and Tensing it was a great moment everybody cheered well Henry what brought you over to the Isle of Man well really it brought me over to the Isle of Man was romance but it fell through. But I liked the island, so I stayed. And you, you haven't got any family or relatives over here, but you do still feel that incredible sense of community spirit. Yes, I do. And I've been very lucky because uh, last year, Manx Radio, uh, through people uh, uh, ringing in, I was awarded the Community Award from Manx Radio. Uh, you're sporting a London Marathon 2012 top this afternoon. Did you run it? I race walked it and I did it in just over six hours and as I said before I could have gone back to the finish because everybody was offering you drinks left right and centre I could have got drunk but luckily I don't drink but it's sometimes a bit awkward when you get the Eiffel Tower overtaking you and Big Ben also overtaking you (laughs) yeah I know that feeling Henry De Silva thank you so much for being our guest on Women's Day this afternoon And now we're talking about whether or not a curfew on newly qualified drivers is a good idea. Well, Manx Radio is currently reporting that an 8pm curfew for R-plate drivers on the island is something that's being considered by the Department of Infrastructure. Now, this proposal follows a spate of deaths on island roads in recent years involving teenage drivers on R-plates. 
At the moment, it's understood the move is one which is under consideration, but there is no set date for any possible introduction of such an initiative. So we want to know, what do you think about an 8pm curfew for R-plate drivers? A good idea when it comes to safety or, Kate, totally unreasonable? What do you reckon? I don't think it's a very good idea, if I'm completely honest. I do think that something needs to be done to protect young drivers and often protect young drivers from themselves. However... I think the R-plate system we have in in place at the moment, which restricts you for a whole year to not drive over 50 miles an hour, perhaps that needs to be reinforced or enforced properly. And I think an 8pm curfew is far too early. Research, though, does suggest that one in five new drivers crash in the first six months. And I would also say that daytime driving does not prepare you for nighttime driving. So surely there should be some way of making sure that you are safe to drive at night, that you know exactly what you're doing, you're, you understand the hazards. Um, and I think, well, maybe if you know if it's my child who just passed their test, I'd be quite happy if they weren't allowed to go out after 8 o'clock. I think there's two points there. I think it has to come back to um, the, the actual process of teaching someone to drive I've always thought why don't we have something in place where you have to complete a certain number of hours in the rain a certain number of hours in the dark a certain number of hours in bright bright sunshine it's interesting they do that in Germany actually by law drivers have to do um, a number of hours of night driving with an instructor before they are allowed to go out on their own at night I've always thought that would be quite a sensible thing to introduce here but going back to what you said about um, your children and maybe not wanting them to drive at night I was thinking back to when I passed my test I passed at 16 I had an plates because I'd passed over here on the island and actually I was thinking about how my mum and dad must have felt and I think for a lot of the time they were probably happier that you know at 16 17 years old I was coming back at say 11 o'clock say midnight but from a party but I was driving I think they were probably happier that I was driving and they knew that I was sensible than thought oh she's not allowed to drive so we'll let her come home and get a lift with someone we don't know who's been at the same party may have had a drink and doesn't have an R plate so is allowed to drive Joe? Um, yeah, first of all, I'm really pleased that they are looking at doing something about it um, because it's that's definitely good to hear. I'm not sure whether this will help, um, although I do see in research that it has helped in lots of other countries, Australia being one of them. I personally feel that it should be um, over the hours of midnight. I think from midnight onwards, perhaps, this should be where there should be a curfew rather than being so early in the evening. The other point I should make is possibly not making it a curfew, but actually I think we need to be looking at engine sizes that these cars that the kids out there are driving um, because I think that's more of a problem the fact that they aren't obeying the 50 miles an hour speeds and something should be more done on that rather than curfewing perhaps when they are out at night driving I think I should say and I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm not remembering right but I think when they launched this consultation ages and ages ago I remember filling it in myself um, engine size was another thing that came up um, uh, number of passengers there's, there's a lot more and I think perhaps a curfew is almost too simple an idea and too easy and that's why this is the one that's kind of got some legs to it Carl what are your thoughts on this oh it's an interesting idea um being new to the island and coming from a city that's well lit it was really quite as an experienced driver what really sort of sticks in my mind and what reminds me is that you can drive around and get to know the roads really quite well on the island man during the daytime. But at night, it takes on a completely different thing. It's much, much dangerous at night, much more dangerous at night. And I, I, I think 8 o'clock in the summer, when it's light, is, is nonsense really, but 8 o'clock from now on in, 
for the next five, six months when it's really dark. Might have some, you know, some, you know, depth to it. The thing is with um, the the R, I've never seen the R plate before, and I think that's a really good idea that other road users know that somebody in front of you or around you is a relatively new driver, and they could make mistakes and. You know, and it's like seeing an L plate. You know, when somebody's learning to drive, you you are that little bit more aware that somebody's inexperienced. You know, especially if you've got children in your car. But a, a curfew, you know, it seems a bit harsh. But from a safety point of view, from the darkness, I mean, I'm a very experienced driver, and I find driving, I drive much slower at night. Around here. I just wonder two things. I think the first thing is, should we as parents perhaps be looking more responsible and putting a curfew on our own children going out rather than being kind of this, it being a, a government thing where it's kind of like the curfew's been set out there. And the second thing is a spanner in the works. But I just wonder whether we should provide more street lighting if actually the island should be more lit up at night rather than everything being so dark and therefore we may not have so many problems driving around in the dark. Mm. I think one of my other problems with this is that we, we seem to be linking um, bad driving to young age and I think that's that's not always the case I appreciate that there are a lot of, of pe- young people who've just passed their test who do drive too fast who do dive, drive dangerously but there are also plenty of people who are much much older who drive dangerously too and they certainly don't have our plates okay we've got a lot of thoughts on this one we'll hear some of those just after this women today brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away. Been asking whether you think a curfew on newly qualified drivers is a good idea or not. We've got lots of comments on this. Uh, Tony says, 8pm is a ridiculous idea. What happens if you're a shift worker and you sometimes have to work a late shift? Has anyone mentioned what time in the morning the curfew would end? Uh, Mike says, it's not been thought through. What about young people, again, who work in the evening? Ian says, if my kids wanted their car at night, they could have it, but they had to be home by 11pm. If they wanted to stay out later, no car. Yes, I was strict but my kids are both still alive in their 20s and uh, Chris says he's brought this uh, issue up before stopping young drivers from driving in the dark won't teach them anything young drivers should be instructed how to get out of skids on a skid pan and that would stop the majority of accidents um, I think it's probably important at this point to bring in the thoughts of driving instructors and Kate you've been talking to some this morning yeah this morning I uh, made a few phone calls to some driving instructors to get their thoughts on this and um, I spoke to Chris Stewart of Man in School of Driving and he believes the curfew is too early He says you've got to take into consideration that people have jobs that finish later than 8pm. He is positive about the idea, but not the time. He also says there should be an age discrepancy. He's currently teaching someone who's 60 years old and says you couldn't give them a curfew. Perhaps, he suggests, you could go by the age of insurance brackets to decide who should be given a curfew. However, he believes the problem lies more in how many passengers our plate drivers are allowed to carry. He says you even see this in the daytime with new drivers being distracted by a full car of people. People, and he believes correcting this is more important than a curfew on not, uh, on newly qualified drivers. I also spoke to another driving instructor who's asked to remain anonymous and he said, or she said, don't believe it's anything to do with our plates. It's all about how people are taught. You need to focus on safety, different driving conditions and educate drivers. And our guest this afternoon is a qualified squash coach who wants to see more women take up or come back to the sport. Um, but before we talk about how you're planning to do that, Carl Albright, um, I'm just going to get it out of the way. People will detect from your accent that you're not from around these parts. Where are you from? I'm from Birmingham. And what brought you over to the Isle of Man? Uh, well, I just I came over and followed uh, my brother, who came over a number of years before me, and it just seemed the right thing to do at that time. And 
I could do it, so I did it, and I'm so glad I did. You are sporting a Norton top. Were you always a big mm-hmm. fan of motorbike racing? Oh, yes, yes, always. Yeah. Tell me about growing up, though, in um, Birmingham, in and around that area. What was your childhood like? It was great because we were very lucky because we were in uh, Bourneville, which is a beautiful part of Birmingham, and, of course, Cadbury's and chocolate. <laughs> and it was great. And um, we were very lucky. We had parks, and, you know, it, it wasn't the industrial area that people think when they hear the word Birmingham it, it, we were very lucky and, and it was great interesting we were talking um, just before we came on air about accents and I think mm. the Birmingham accent it's brilliant because it is so distinctive <laughs> but you're not so yeah. keen on it no I don't think it's great <laughs> why is that uh, oh no it's just a bit flat it's like a flat they're, they're not nicer accents but uh, ours is horrible it could oh. be worse it could be black country <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you mentioned Cabris, and oh, yeah. I understand from, from what you said before that many of your friends, when they were thinking about going into into the world of work, chose that as a career path. Many mm. of them still there. Ever thought yeah, about yeah. it yourself? I did. I was there for one day. Well, I, I, it, was, it, was, it was horrible. I didn't like it at all. But it, it, going to Cabris was... Because we went to Cabris schools, you see. We Bourneville is Cabris, so... A lot of a lot of people from school went to Cadbury's and stayed in Bourneville. Um, my best friend at school is still there. But uh, if you didn't do that and you wanted to do something a little bit more technical, there was triplex, of course, there was um, Rover Leyland. And, uh, but you could do just about any trade in, in Birmingham or the Midlands that you wanted to do. It was the workshop of the country, of course, but uh, I went into jewellery. Going back to Cadbury's, <laughs> I always think yeah. of it as Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, Not yeah. like that at all, then? No, oh. no it makes you feel sick. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, we uh, we all love chocolate because it was in the air. I mean, as kids, every day in the playground, you smell chocolate. Every single day, you know. It doesn't get better than that, does it? <laughs> so you went into jewellery, you said. Did, How yeah. did you end up doing that? Well, it was... Um, just at the careers advice, uh, they said there was an opening at the jewellers, and I thought my mum would love it. And I phoned, I, they arranged an, uh, an interview for me, and I phoned my dad to find out if he knew where it was. And he did, and he, he just said, Make sure you're clean and tidy and, and put a shirt and tie on. And I think it was the shirt and tie that got me the job. <laughs> so <laughs> and what I, did stayed, you, I stayed there, I loved it. It's, what did you start off yeah. doing? The, my very first job was stamping silver on the back of silver St Christopher's on a little hand press and that was my and I I remember I remember it vividly I was thinking wow I'm at work (laughs) I was only 16 and it was it was really good and I I stayed there for a number of years and learned to do everything that they they did at that place and then I went to Cadbury's stayed one day hated it and then went back to the jewellery and started to learn how to make rings, and I've made rings ever since. Can you spot a fake piece of jewellery at 10 paces? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, normally, not at 10 paces, but, yeah, normally you can spot it, yeah. So how would you then, if you, you were looking for a good piece of jewellery, how do you know that you've got the real deal? Well, if, if it's gold or platinum, or silver for that matter, it would be properly hallmarked, and you'll know a proper hallmark rather than a foreign stamp um, and with stones diamonds in particular you, you can tell 
Um, I, I can always tell by turning them upside down and looking them from the back out. And if it's a cubic zirconia or a CZ or a spinel or something, you can spot it a mile away. Do you know, we're all fiddling around <laughs> know, with yeah. our rings oh, here. It looks like going, I'm going to be looking yeah. at all your jewellery. Um, we'll, uh, yeah. we'll do that during the break, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but you started, what, 1976. How yeah. has the trade, the industry of jewellery yeah. making, changed oh, in that changed. time? Oh, I mean, up until the recession under Mrs Thatcher in the 80s, we, we saw what we, we, we call Hockley the trade. We, we saw the area of the trade. It lost a lot of people that never came back. And then it was only the really good that managed to cling on uh, to their jobs. And nowadays, with the the advent of CAD, you know, some of the, the, the great model makers, the people that made even the old school jewellers, they're, they're struggling against people that can do um, computer-aided design. And this video, um, 3D printing is the death nail of the model making side of it but you always want people there are always people out there that want a handmade one-off piece of jewel, handmade jewellery you know you can buy tons of junk on, on television and it is rubbish I've seen millions of them and repaired most of them but there are plenty of people that want quality and there's, there's some fantastic jewellers not just in Birmingham but in the trade what is the best thing that you've ever made Ah well, um, I've, I've made some beautiful rings in the in time, but one of the the most interesting things that we ever got to make was for the Manx lad, and I'd love it if he was listening. It's going back a few years now, and he got a Ferrari Airfix um, kit cast in red gold. Um, not not all of it, but just the main parts by a, a caster that was down in Luton, I believe. That he he said, I'll, I'll do it but it's at your risk. And then he brought it over to... But I, I can't remember how I got associated with it, but we made this 60s classic Ferrari car in red gold. We made all the headlights and the, the windscreens in white gold. We had rubies for the back lights, and, and it, we had the, the hallmark was the, the number plate, and it was absolutely fantastic. And a silver um, German Second World War motorbike and sidecar in silver we put that together as well so we put all the pieces together these two fantastic and I th I'm not sure but I, I think that the Duke's shop bought the car I think but it was a long time ago and I wouldn't like to say that they did or didn't but I am so dying yeah. to be nosy and ask you yeah. what value it would be at well it, it, it I, I couldn't really tell you. It, a lot of money. <laughs> but, well, when we when we made that, it would have been in the, I'd have thought, the mid nineties, I think like that. But since then, gold's gone through the roof. So it'd be worth ten times more than it was then, because gold is, you know. So it, what are you doing over here then? You're still in the trade. Very tiny, weeny amounts, really, just to keep my hand in because. Um, I was still working in the jewellery to a, a degree when I, I, I'd started doing some polishing and gold plating for Dr John Taylor and he was producing a, um, a reproduction Costas clock which is just fabulous, a, a fabulous piece of kit, it really is and it was a joy to work on, and it, was, it was fantastic and it would be one of my abiding memories of my entire life to, to have done that with him 
and I just stayed. That's <laughs> five years ago, and I just stayed with him. Well, and for people who don't know who Dr John Taylor is, just tell us a bit about him. Dr John is of Strix fame, and he's an inventor and all-round top bloke. And he's, I, I think people would associate with John if they didn't know him through the clocks and his clock collection, his love for clocks. Is He's the man that gave you the kettle on and off switch. So he, he invented the 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 um, bimetal switch, invented it, and the engineers and, and the, the, the bods at Strix made it work. So when your kettle goes off, when it boils, that's down to Dr John Taylor. Well, Carl, thank you so much for being with us. We haven't <laughs> even got on to squash yet, but no. we are wondering whether maybe you could cast mm. as a Women's Day mug in something valuable. <laughs> like a diamond? Yeah. Single right. diamond? Pink diamond. Pink diamond. <laughs> if you could work on yeah. that for the next uh, sort of 45 no minutes problem. or so, that'd yeah. be great. Now, my guest this afternoon is Jade Boylan, who is a freelance illustrator who works from her home here in Mackled, creating designs for local and international clients. And with more than 20,000 followers collectively across all her social media profiles, her work is hugely, hugely popular. But privately, Jade has been battling depression and anxiety, and it was only a couple of months ago that she found out what might be behind it all. Now, Jade, we'll find out about that in just a moment, but... Can you talk us through what it's like to suffer from anxiety and depression, particularly at such a young age? Well, we found out I'd been suffering from it since I was 13, and I first got treatment for it when I was 23. So it had been a decade of trying to deal with it, trying to live with it and just sort of keep going. So it was very difficult. It was really frustrating. I mean, everyone has doubt, has low days. I know that, and everyone has good days, but I seem to have more low days so I sought treatment last year and it's been really really good really helpful I've learned an awful lot obviously I've had a diagnosis now but even before that they taught me a lot they taught me how to cope better how to deal with things better how to accept it so that it's not a bad thing if you have anxiety or depression lots of people do and it's quite a normal part of life really and how did it manifest itself? Were you the sort of person who, who sought solitude? Did you try and, and speak about it with people? I'd always been happy by myself ever since I was little. I, I'm not one of these people that has to have other people around them. I mean, I have friends and I, I love seeing my family, but I do need time to recharge afterwards. I think I grew up, I, was, I always knew I was introverted. So it sort of manifested in me just really, really low moods and... The anxiety was was pretty annoying because I'm, I think sometimes people think I can be quite confident, but I'm not. It's all just a bit of a, a bit of an act. And what sort of things were you anxious about? Just mainly social things, which that became a big clue when I eventually got my diagnosis. Um, I I was fine dealing with small social gatherings, but I would sort of I I would get really really panicky and have panic attacks in large crowds or busy places. So we're talking about this diagnosis, and you were diagnosed in August with high-functioning Asperger's. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm still learning about it myself, really. Um, the, fir- the very first thing I learned when they told me about it was how most people have this common misconception that if you have Asperger's, you're like Rain Man. So you're an absolute genius, and you know everything, and you're sort of really socially awkward. Um, which, of course, isn't the case. It might be for some people, but it, it is a spectrum, so there are varying levels of how it affects people. With some people, it could be quite a severe disability, 
with others it could be a gift because without Asperger's we wouldn't have people like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Einstein or apparently Jane Austen or Michelangelo. And how helpful has it been for you knowing that there are those very high profile names, very, very successful people who have had the same journey as you? It's been really comforting, actually, because I knew there was something different or something wrong with me, but I didn't know what. And now that I have a name for it, it's been fantastic learning more about it and learning why I think the way I do and maybe why I'm different to other people. But I think it is a gift. I think I know a lot of people might see it as a as a hindrance, but I don't think it is. I think it's a good thing. How does it affect you on a day-to-day basis? Um, typically, someone with Asperger's will struggle a lot with social interaction, and they might not be able to recognise social norms in other people. Now, I'm lucky I don't have that problem. I think I've learned to adapt and fit in, as as many women diagnosed with it do. But it can still be frustrating sometimes. I, I might come across as a bit cold or a bit unfeeling, which I don't mean to be. It's just because I might not understand the situation properly. It's really interesting um, thinking about Asperger's and, and we were talking before the programme started that it is often felt that it's more of a, a man's condition and, and because they are more maybe obvious in the symptoms that they show. Absolutely. When they first told me oh, Jade, we think this is what you might have. They said, what do you know about it? And I said, oh, well, nothing. And the only examples I could think of or people I knew with it were all men, who were all male. And to be honest, I didn't even know women could have it because they fly, we fly under the radar. And so women aren't usually diagnosed till they're in their 40s, which is obviously frustrating. But it's because women learn to adapt better and they learn to fit in and hide it and maybe they don't have as unusual obsessions or interests. Do you wish you'd you'd had this diagnosis, I suppose, this, this label earlier on in your life? Yeah, definitely. I think it would have been quite helpful. I mean, I think growing up the way I did and dealing with the things I had to deal with it's definitely made me stronger or made me more adaptable to situations. But I do think... Had I known about this when I was younger, it would have been a big help. Definitely. And particularly at school, which is something that you struggled with. Yeah, I was... It's really frustrating because when I was seven, um, I did the... I was part of the Elspach tests on the island and they discovered that I had a reading age of above 16 plus and an IQ of... got really high for a child my age. So on paper, I was a genius, but in class, I was sort of an average student, unless it was art or reading. So growing up, having teachers yell at me and calling me stupid and, you know, and then I would stand up and recite like a, I don't know, full thing from Shakespeare or name all 50 American states or something. I suppose it should have been a big sign that maybe it wasn't quite normal. <laughs> but nobody picked up on it while I was at school and that, I, term, that I know of. In terms of knowing now what's going on, I mean, is it something that's treated? Is it something you just manage or is it something you just accept as part of you? There's no sort of formal treatment for it obviously they can't give you any medicine or do a blood test to prove that you have it um, depending on how it affects a person really decides the sort of treatment they'll get so if if it's quite debilitating for someone then obviously there are resources to help them and help them control help them adapt help them live um, I don't fall into that category there isn't really much of anything they can do for me they've said I was given a, a list of books to read, which was really interesting, but 
it's just sort of learning about it myself and learning to do what I can. How much do you use art and your creative side to express yourself when you're having your um, low days, for instance? Yeah, art's probably the only constant I really had to sort of keep me going. That and the books, which sounds really sad, but <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. Um, it was unusual because the lower I got, the more colourful and bright and creative my work became, um, which is still sort of the case now. On a day when I'm feeling a bit a bit low, I'll probably draw a big colourful rainbow head lady or something <laughs> um so it i don't know it's definitely helped me a lot because growing up i was told oh you, you can't express yourself very well you you don't have emotions you're unfeeling which you don't really want to hear that at any point in your life let alone when you're a teenager so i think i've took solace in my art and i thought well even if i can't write you a beautiful poem or declare my love or something <laughs> at least i can draw a nice picture and Obviously, I put my emotions into that, even if I'm not aware of it. It just shows how therapeutic and, and cathartic, I guess, art can be for somebody like you. I think for anyone, really. If you, I mean, it, it's easy for me. I have a creative outlet. That is what I do for a living. Um, I think it's, it's the reason these adult colouring books have become so popular, because if you work at an office job or something without any creative outlet, that is missing from your life, and you need it, I think, if you don't you don't take up crafts or maybe you you don't bake or you don't cook much I think everyone needs a creative outlet so I just happen to have one all the time <laughs> how influenced then Jade are you in your work by living here in the Isle of Man because you are very very keen to call yourself a Manx artist I am definitely I'm very very proud to be Manx I'm really proud to live here um, I don't do an awful lot of Manx-themed work, which I can come under a bit of flack for, but um, it's only because there's so much to inspire you in the world, and there's so you know there is a big world out there. I think as nice as it is to keep everything local and at home, it's also nice to broaden your horizons a bit. Um, I do have one Manx thing. I have a set of paper dolls for children that are Manx-themed, which are quite popular, and they've got Manx names. Yeah, little Ailish and little Ilium, and they have <laughs> little Manx dress up and Hoptune dress up. <laughs> Interesting that you just said um, you sometimes come under f for some flack because of you, you don't sort of centre a lot of your work on, on Manx themes. I wonder what it's like to to put your work out there, um, you, you blog about it, you write about it, you're very honest about it, and some people don't like what you do. How do you handle criticism? Well, the same way you do for anything, really. You know that you're not going to be everyone's cup of tea and... I think a lot of the time if I get a comment, maybe someone being a bit snarky or saying, oh, I don't really like this, do something else, you just have to think, well, they couldn't do it at all. Or <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter if they don't like it because 50 other people like it and somebody's just bought it. So um, luckily I've, I've not really had anyone absolutely hate what I do, which is quite nice. I w when I was reading your blog, um, there was some criticism you came in for the way that you did your characters and somebody criticising the size yeah. of the dolls. Now, having looked through some of your work, I mean, I know Kate and I were looking at it before we came on the show, and we think, you know, they're quite curvy looking, actually. They're not the, the typical stick insect type. I mean, what did you make of that? It was because, um, I mean, I like to vary the size of the... Because I do, I do mainly draw women in my own work and girls. So I like to vary the size, you know, the, the background, how, what they look like. But I think I'd, I'd drawn... It was based on a real person I know, and she is very slender, and she has quite a, a 
thigh gap, you know. <laughs> and people just were saying, oh, you're drawing her, oh, she's a stick and set, oh, it's not very nice, oh, draw someone with curves. And I thought, well, no, I'll draw what I like. And women come in all shapes and sizes, so why should I stick to one, you know, sort of look? We have been talking this afternoon whether or not you think a curfew on newly qualified drivers is a good idea or not. We've got lots of thoughts on this. Um, Steve says it's not so much engine size, it's more the BHP that needs restricting. Um, Gary says all the accidents last year were caused by people breaking the law, so no matter how many laws you make, they would still have happened. So why punish the good drivers because of a handful of bad ones? We've had one from Alex who says, I don't think this was solved much regarding accidents, which generally occur due to careless driving, and that can happen at any time of day or night she says she recalls the spate of five separate incidents in 40 minutes last week which all occurred before 8 p.m i should also say that this is a person as a person that works shifts which often finish later than eight o'clock so new drivers should be penalized for working late i'm all for looking at ways to reduce road accidents but this isn't the solution in my opinion and jill says on facebook seems harsh would also affect those with evening classes at college and danielle says just put up the age it's unfair that everyone else who isn't a teenager gets penalized Uh, Helen says, even one life saved is worth it. You could just go to a designated police officer to get a pass if you need one. Limit the engine size and no passengers at night. Uh, David says, hi girls, I'd be much more inclined to escalate penalties for repeat offenders instead. Uh, Pete says, no to curfew. Anyone subject to a driving curfew who then breaks the law would not be insured. That's uh, something we haven't talked about actually. And Dave says, statistically most accidents with young people occur between 11pm and 7am, so an 8pm curfew is ridiculous. It should be a 11pm with a margin of error of 15 minutes before sanctions, that's a ban or points take effect. Jackie has a lot of ideas. She says, on one hand I can understand but if we are doing this because of young drivers linked fatalities at night, why penalise the 40-something drivers who have just passed their test? Why not impose a curfew on drivers under the age of whatever irrespective of whether they are our plates raise the age of drivers make the test involve a course on consequences of bad driving what about drivers who have employment in evening or family commitments and she goes on but at the end she says at the end of the day this isn't about wanting to restrict people's lives it's about saving them thanks as always to our amazing guests and as ever it's never too late for you to get involved head over to facebook find the women today facebook page and you can comment there or you can follow us at mr women today on twitter and you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shore.com. Love being sure. Terms and conditions apply.